Welcome, welcome one and all to another episode of Handcut Radio. I'm Alex Fetkovic and this week I'm thrilled to introduce you to one of my oldest and dearest mentors, Mr. Christopher Modu. It's not easy to unpack what Chris does for you because he wears a lot of hats. As you'll hear, he's worked as a buyer and designer in London's West End tailoring scene for decades and his understanding of the foibles of sartorial menswear is quite frankly second to none. In fact, this is something I quiz him on during our conversation. He's also a consultant working primarily with heritage menswear brands and he's the co-founder of Kit Blake, a young brand that makes luxurious tailored trousers which distill all Chris's sartorial experience down into a contemporary approachable product. At a time when a lot of tailoring brands are facing serious challenges, Kit Blake is growing at a rate of knots and I wanted to unpick why. If you follow Chris on Instagram, you'll also know that he's been touting the controversial hashtag, the suit is dead. So we unpick the logic behind this too. As you'll hear, Chris isn't short on an opinion, so this conversation is a little bit of a romp through the sartorial world. As always, we hope you enjoy. Okay, Mr. Modu, here we are. Uh, welcome to Handcut Radio. Thanks. Thank you, Alex. That's all right. Thanks for coming on. Um, I thought we'd start with just a quick little bit of context uh, because you are one of my first mentors. I am. Um, you were the first sort of Savile Row creative to actually look at my absolutely rubbish, naff 19-year-old blog and kind of go, oh, actually, sort of the, the, some of the words on there make sense. And the student tailor. The student tailor. I've, I still refer back to it. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> um, but yes, you are, you are sort of Savile Row through and through, really, Savile Row and German Street. I'm West End through and through, yeah, definitely. Fine. That's, that's the terminology, is it? Yes. Well, let's, let's just start with a bit of a whiz through your West End career. Okay. Uh, just so that listeners have kind of got the backstory, because sure. I think it's an interesting one. Okay. Um, left school at 18, very few qualifications, no imagination on what job to do, so ended up in a high street bank. Hated it. 18 months later... You were, you were the best-dressed cashier in Best-dressed cashier. I was, I was... Yeah, certainly in, like, 1990, which wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't a great year for men's fashion, yeah. I was wearing uh, Thurston braces and stuff and enamel cufflinks, and it didn't really didn't, didn't really work well in a suburban bank. We, we were talking. You had a you had a navy blazer and Prince of Wales check trousers, didn't you? I that? did. I did. That wasn't allowed. <laughs> you didn't, it was really bizarre. It, it, it's very. I, I reference it a lot for Kits Blake, uh, which we'll come on to later. I hope. Um, yeah. How you didn't have the young guys weren't expected to wear jackets to work, but if you did wear a jacket, it had to match your trousers, which I never understood. So they, they, so a blazer was considered less smart than shirt sleeves. But hey, I, I never really got on there. <laughs> old fashioned wasn't me at all. wasn't wasn't out for me. So I got a job in Selfridges. Start uh, absolutely love Selfridges. Great great place. Met some amazing people. Uh, far more vibrant. Far more creative. The senior people there were much friendlier. I think it was first name rather than Mister So and So, which was in the bank. Um, which I loved, more less formality. Um, from that, I became the concession manager fairly young for Thomas Pink, which is a, a small independent shirt shop in Chelsea, which I used to love from my school days. I was buying my shirts in sixth form. And I was 21 years old, concession manager of a, of mm. a, of a concession of a million pound turnover. And, and that was when Pink's was an independent shirt maker. Mm. Yeah, I day. think, I think, 
I think uh, Selfridges was store five, maybe six. Right. It was pre-German Street, or yeah, pre-German Street. So it was Dover Street was the flagship. Right. Which is actually quite a cool address now. Uh, they'd just gone to the airports, and, and it was still more of a city brand than a West End brand. Fine. So yeah, that was that was really good fun. That was cool, and lots of Larry shirts. Oh, so many shirts, <laughs> so many shirts. <laughs> I must have had. I think I had 120 Thomas Pink shirts. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a lot. But well, yeah, we bought shirts for a thing. It was double cuff and bright colours and shirts. That, that's and... that's a menswear thing, isn't it? Like my 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 folks and my girlfriend. You know, I'll come home with a blazer that has maybe. You know, one that has show buttons on the chest and one that doesn't. Yeah. And they're both navy blazers to my family. Of and they're like, they why the hell do you need those? I'm like, because there's two extra buttons on oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a fundamentally oh, different no. I never, garment. I never had. Did I have to? I may have had two cornflower blue double cuff, but from the 120, I never had, I never had duplicates. I, I didn't wear white shirts. White shirts were considered a bit naff back then. Right. Um, so, yeah, I put, it was 120 checks, ginghams. Bengals, butchers, hairlines, end on ends. It was great. It was great. Rock and roll. Apart from the person I had to wash and iron my shirts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you were rock and roll. So I did that. Had a great time. That was all the whole mid, through the through the nineties. Met some fantastic people. Yeah. Um, got to introduce a lot of good tailors um, through the industry. Other other suppliers, I got th- I got to know things like Crockett and Jones shoes, Edward Green shoes that are both stopped at some point at Selfridges. So my habit for expensive shoes started then. Mm-hmm. Also, my habit of having suits made started then because we could. Yeah. Um, and then I actually started, I went to work for the person making my suits, a company called Roderick Charles, which I think is still going in yeah. German Street, lovely little brand. Um, so I went there to be a, a shop manager and to learn about. Tailoring. Mm-hmm. That was fun. And then I got a phone call for a new shop opening up on Savile Row. 40 Savile 40 Row. 40 Savile Row. And infamous I was, uh, brand. Infamous 40 Savile Row, <laughs> which was, yeah, my, my first time in Savile Row, which was 97. Right. Uh, three young guys with, from, non, from non-Savile Row backgrounds. And in context, I was the most traditional one because I was the only one who had any made-to-measure background. And I'd worked in German Street. The other two guys, who I'm still very good friends with, came from high street and fashion. Um, and that was basically sort of contemporary made-to-measure tailoring. Contemporary made-to-measure, I guess. It roughed up the row a little bit. It roughed up the row, and I think it probably had exactly the same press as a lot of people had. Probably the similar press as sort of like Richard James was getting. Uh, probably the same sort of comments you'd have had, say, from when Cat and the Dandy first came to Savile Row. Mm-hmm. Or when suit suppliers came to to Savile Row, it was, you know, we were not spoken to and ignored, which which suited us fine because we were too busy selling a lot of suits. Yeah, <laughs> fine. Clothes on Saturday, we 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 made a lot of money by being open on Saturday. Mm. Yeah, and which it, of course suit supply does now. At yeah, the top of course. Of, uh, I know Savile Row is kind of open. I know Gives opens. Yes, um, that's true. That's true. Uh, but back in the day, it was. We were the only shop open, so we we we, we sold people, we sold seats, and we made it very simple and very demystified it. Right. Well, there you go. And so, then next was Eden Ravenscroft. Have I got that right? Eden Ravenscroft, which was really interesting because I've gone, I went from the youngest tailor on Savile Row to a tailor that existed when Savile Row was probably a sheep farm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Established yeah. 16, 1689. 
So that was that was really really interesting to go from going from a company with no heritage and just looking forward thinking and modern to a company with a serious amount of heritage. Yeah, that that, that needs to be respected. Oh yeah, which needs to be respected. But I absolutely loved that. I was taken on as made to measure coordinator. Cool. Which is an interesting role, really lovely role. And then a couple of years into that, I was uh, the retail director, a guy called Paul Buckle, very good friend of mine, saw that my skills were transferable and he said, you could, you could do the buy. You could, you could, you could, you could, you ready to wear a tailor. I'm like, fantastic. So that was, that was it. That was. And then funnily enough, years before we first met. Yes. I sort of somehow caught the Modu bug because yes. obviously I was a student at Oxford. The Eden Ravenscroft on the high street in Oxford was a place that I used to sort of pause outside the windows of and look longingly inside. Oh, it's a, it was a beautiful shop, the old Hall Brothers, an yeah, amazing shop. Yeah, it's just stunning. Um, and I used to go in and bug the staff, and I never bought anything because I couldn't afford it. But I, you, you know, they used to, they were fairly tolerant of me coming in and trying stuff on. I think if you worked in Oxford Branch, you need just to be tolerant of, of students. <laughs> yeah. It came um, with the job description. But I just a, remember, but I remember some of the suits that, that I now know in retrospect you had designed yes. were just the bollocks even back then. There was... There was an RAF blue chalk stripe flannel, and I remember seeing it styled with like you know a cornflower blue shirt and a purple tie and green yeah. socks, and thinking, yeah. "Bloody hell, that's a look." There was a navy double-breasted twin stripe, sorry, a navy single-breasted twin stripe, very yes. straight jacket with notch lapels, yeah, and yeah. then a double-breasted waistcoat on it. Yes, and you could not get a ready-to-wear double-breasted waistcoat anywhere. That was one of the things I wanted to do. I think uh, again, it was really. Is just using my taste of made to measure to inform ready to wear. Mm. So I was doing, and it seems normal now, but a ticket pocket, the occasional pick the pair on a single breasted coat, double breasted waistcoat. Um, all, just, the, all those details. You couldn't find. You Where would you get that off the peg? Yeah. So we were doing it, but also, but very tastefully within the constraints of Eden Ravenscroft and classic English tailoring. Very conservative, yeah, but in it a nice did, way. But it did appeal. I mean, a lot of our customers were obviously barristers. It did appeal to the QCs, mm. who mm. sort of reached a stage in their career where they could be slightly more flamboyant. And, and, it, and it appealed to a 17-year-old peacock and that no, a knew nothing peacock about tailoring knew nothing about tailoring, but I like that. Yeah, it, yeah you, you, always see, you always need things at that age when you're, you know, you're sort of 16, 17, things that you look at and, and resonates. Yeah. For me, it was the next directory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, wasn't which it? Was there, which was there, which was a big part of me. But hey, you, you see something and you just think, I don't know why I like it, but I, something about it I like it. And then you just, you save up for it, you, you obtain it, and then you, you learn about it and you realise why you like it. And then you get the more expensive version. And, the, and, the, and on it goes. And on it goes. And on it goes, on everyone's it goes. journey. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, and then let's let's finish this thread before yeah, yeah, we move go, up to today. Bit, yeah. So Eden Ravenscroft, Great Guns. Did the decade there? So was fact, it? Yeah, decade there. Best you know, my thirties. I spent my thirties at Eden Ravenscroft, and I I was really happy there. I for someone who you no, know, you couldn't want more from ten years out of a career in any place. And I met my wife. I travelled extensively to Italy, Mauritius, Europe. Learnt loads. Um, got to deal with the royal households. Went to Buckingham Palace for you know, so really great ten years, but I thought I wanted to move beyond that. Mm. So I saw I was approached by, had a conversation with, with, with Chester Barry. Yeah, I think I, I left Eden Ravenscroft really to be more creative. 
the big pull, as well as going back to Savile Row, because obviously Eden Ravenscroft being traditional, didn't, was was still based in the city, mm. um, was the opportunity to work at Redwood Sexton. Yes. Because I remember chatting about the T's and C's, this is your salary, this is your role. We've just taken on Sexton as a, as a, as a consultant. I went, really? I went, yeah, definitely. Uh, so I had four to five amazing years working with Redwoods. On blocks and patterns. On and... patterns and, yeah, patterns, style, construction. You know, you, whenever you work Redwood, you have to pretty much forget what you know, start again. Yeah. I certainly had to look at well, how I see shapes now. has been very much informed by my time at Redwoods. Brilliant. Um, but that came to a close. That came to a close abruptly two and a half years ago. And since then, we are now in the present with Kit Blake. Now, let's, let's unpick this a little bit. Mm. Um, why, when you sort of had the opportunity to do something new, start a new chapter, did you think, I want to do very, very British, high-waisted, pleated flannel trousers properly? How, 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 what was that like as a thought process? It came about because I was building my portfolio and I was never really, I never at the time thought this would be a, a, a full-time career, but I knew that finding a, a, a job equals what I had at Chester Barry would take months. Mm. I thought I might as well do a few things. So I did some writing, some styling, a little bit of lecturing. And I spoke to a very good friend of mine called Richard Wheat. I think just to see, did he need a consultant on some of his businesses? And he said, where's your opportunities at the moment? And it was always trousers. I, I felt frustrated that my time in, in the corporate world of, of menswear is that when you put your collection together and you need to shave it because there isn't the open to buy, there isn't the budget, the first thing they cross out is, is trouser. Mm. And trousers are treated like bottom half of suits. Well, to me, a trouser is an item and it's more relevant. And looking at my own personal wardrobe when I was freelance, it was like, quite a decent selection of blazers i think i had 10 double uh, 10 double breasted that would be silly actually i had 10 blue blazers yeah and only one or two pairs of gray fans i really liked i thought that's completely the wrong way around i should have every jacket i should have two or three trousers because i was dressing i think we've both seen in the last few years the new formality of not having to wear a suit and a shirt and a tie you can dress elegantly and appropriately and I needed trousers. So I, I felt there was, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't alone in thinking that. So talking to Richard, I said, we, should, we, we need an English trouser brand at an affordable price, affordable price mm. which isn't bespoke. It's top end high street. So that's a stretch for the guy who's probably shopping in Reese or Hugo Boss. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, we put together a few patterns. And. My favourite is the Alexander. Yes. <laughs> no, which we should explain was very, very uh, sweetly named in deference to my, my love of pleats the one of, uh, the, and, the, and wide legs, which yeah. I've ranted about before. Exactly. So we called it the Alexander. Um, so the four forward pleat. And my business partner absolutely loved it. And we just felt that. that and so we launched with it as a, as a point of difference and it's become our thing. And yeah, that, it does seem to be afresh again. It's from... The higher waisted pleated, they're comfortable, they're elegant, and they're an, we're finding an easy wardrobe upgrade for somebody who's not necessarily into, really into fashion, but just wants to move on their wardrobe. 
they work with what you've already got. They'll work with a decent any uh, unstructured blazers, structured blazers, oh. sneakers, mm. Northampton shoes. And actually, where whereas a lot of your sort of design work previously has all all been about the suit, you mm. know, Kit Blake is much more. One of the things I like about Kit Blake is you can wear it with a sports jacket and a roll neck, or you can just wear it on the weekend with a chunky crew neck and sneakers, yeah. as we said, or a decent pair of boots. It, there, there is something, this, 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 this does constantly drive me mad, so I am going to rant about it again. There, there is, the, the, the idea that you can't wear a very, very tailored trouser is an absol- on the weekends mm. and dress it down oh, is an absolute myth. Um, I was flicking through, this is a little bit of podcast cross-referencing now, I was flicking through the the third issue of Letterkept this morning, and one of the things that struck me about uh, some of the styling in there is there's a lot of great kind of chunky-knit bomber jacket tailored pleated Mm. trousers going on, and it's a really good look. Yeah. Um, So I think, yeah, it's quite exciting that Kit Blake's tapped into that. I think that was definitely happening around the time. It was just, I mean, it's... It looks like, again, again for, we're both menswear enthusiasts, so we, I get that. But for someone who just wants to just look a little bit nice at the weekend, swapping your skinny chinos or your, your expensive jeans for a pair of flannel trousers with what your existing wearing, it, it completely changes your look just with a, a, a decent polo shirt, a bomber jacket and sneakers. Yeah. It looks so, so fresh. Yeah. And it's more comfortable. Jeans aren't comfortable. Mm. We've been told they're comfortable and they're universal, but they're, they're not really comfortable. No. They have their pace. I mean, they're great because you need machine washable trouser. Yeah. They're probably, I'd say they're probably the best machine washable trouser. Yet they don't wash them. People are really into their denim do that really weird thing, but... Denim's not your thing, is it? If jeans didn't exist, you, you, you had to bring them onto the market, you would never get away with it. <laughs> you would never... I mean, for a start... Any high street brand, with their, with their testing, you go, well, how'd they fit? Well, they'll shrink and stretch. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all right then. <laughs> Are they good for the environment? We don't talk about that. Um, it's, it's, it's there. Yeah. And then the money on jeans is one of part of our, I think our pricing was really important. I've, I mean, getting the price point right for any brand is absolutely key. I learned that from Thomas Pink. Thomas Pink, getting that price point, well, at Thomas Pink, I was there in the 90s, we had a £35 shirt. Wow. And you're thinking, German Street typically was 50, High Street was 20. But £35, the £20 shirt customer could stretch to £35, and he did often. But he also got, they got the 50 quid guy. I wanted to, I don't want to buy, I like my £50 shirts, but I don't really want to buy every shirt. If I can buy a second shirt, mm. it's just it's okay, and I like. Or I want to try something, I want, but I don't I want, want to try bit, it. I want to be a bit more adventurous in it. Yeah, I don't want to spend fifty pounds on my bold checks. So I think the Pink's had that. So we had a real, our, our key price point was two five five, and we've 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 got we've got two of our three main target customers. I think that's re- I would say about Kit Blake as part of my PDF. And I go back to it a lot. Who is your customer? And I think that is when I do consultancy because I still have a own consult the Urbane Outfitter, which is my consultancy, which is my umbrella brand. Yeah. I always say to new brands that talk to me is, who is your customer? About you know, the product sounds nice and you've got good make and you've got some that's clever detail. Who who is your customer? And when they say, Well, everyone, we think, okay, everyone. Since everyone will know one. Yeah. Okay. Now that 
is music to mine own ears. Because this is your world you're in and you do consultancy. And Exa- well, yeah. We, yeah, we more or less do the same thing on you that do. side, don't we? You'll do but a bit more professional and you dress out more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I hence, dress it up more. Hence the price. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's all not talk about that on here. Uh, <laughs> the, oh, mate, love it. But back to the, the, the thought that popped into my head there. Yeah. Let's talk about big, big subjects here. Let's talk about where heritage brands are at. Okay. We've had this conversation so many times over Completely. the years, but we are now sat here post-COVID. We've had a, a phenomenally disrupted year. Most of the destination streets in London that you'd associate with British luxury are looking and, and feeling pretty grim at the moment. Mm. Lots of closures. What, what's going on in your view? You know, Is it that the customer is changing? and heritage brands are struggling to identify that? Is it that heritage brands aren't moving? What's going on in the market for kind of classic menswear? I think heritage brands, I mean, some of my most favourite brands are heritage brands. Yeah, and I should say it's exactly the same as you, you know. So I, there I'm are... not, I'm at, but I've worked for, okay, well, I've worked for the oldest tailor probably in the world. Mm-hmm. And I've worked for... New brands. So I worked for Pink when it was new. I worked for Forty Savile Row when it was brand new. And obviously, Kit Blake I invented. And Chester Barry had a heritage. I find new brands easier because you make your you make you, you're not held back. You've got no baggage. Yeah, you, you don't fixate find, on the past. You often have to make. You often have to um, try and make things relevant to what you've done. Too often. And you're constantly looking backwards and you're trying to say, well, that's a great product, but where does it fit into our heritage? Mm. Um, and you talk about it a lot. So let's... And you end up saying the same story a lot. Yeah. You're a West End man through and through then. Oh, completely. I so mean, let's... I've, I've, I've never... I mean, the furthest east I've got is Chancery Lane, so that's, yeah. that's technically West Central. <laughs> Ian, our head office. Ian, our head office. But even the flagship was Savile Row. Yeah. Or, or not. It's Burns and Gardens. Is that Savile Row? all contentious who knows who cares yeah (laughs) um but that's that in itself is an interesting point because if we talk about that street that we both love um, gardens i love it yeah absolutely yeah at top place (laughs) (laughs) well you so you have been on uh social media you have been touting the contentious line the suit is dead yes i have i mean i did it for a little bit of reaction for kit blake to be a tailor that doesn't sell suits that yeah was past, that was part of the, the, the idea that um and i love suits you know i love suits um i've been wearing them a lot but i've always had a love-hate relationship in the fact that i don't i've never understood why a cloth in the same jacket fabric as a trouser should have any more degree of formality than a matching one because in the rest of tailoring, it ain't so. Mm. Uh, morning dress. Morning dress. Evening um, wear. Evening wear. Uh, when I worked for Eden Ravens Croft, we used to make the um, white tie version for the Royal Household, which was a midnight blue jacket, midnight blue coat, tail coat with black trousers. So different fabrics. And that was that was considered the most formal outside of outside of uniforms. But it wasn't well. It was technically a uniform. Yet when we came to a suit, and I think my first suit was actually a jacket and trouser. It was because I couldn't get. I, it was a Prince of Wales check, double breasted for Marks and Spencers, and I, I, I didn't, we, we couldn't find a twenty-eight inch waist. 
<laughs> I wish. Um, so I went to Woodhouse and bought a pair of black, heavily pleated trousers to wear, and that was like my first suit. I got the Prince of Wales check trousers eventually, I think ah. next month or so. But my first suit, which I wore for a wedding, was actually stick trousers. And I, I always found it quite useful when I started work to have two pairs of trousers for the same jacket. So I find this point fascinating because these days I spend 90% of my professional life wearing separates. Yeah. And I order suits never to wear as a suit but to break up. Oh, yeah. Um, which is the premise of Kit Blake, isn't it? it? Is. Three pairs of trousers for every jacket you own. Exactly right. Um, what, why has the suit become to be perceived as more formal than separates then? What's the kind of... I think it was the mob suit. I think it was very much... If you look at the history of the lounge suit, which is what I mean, when I say the suit, um, I'm talking specifically about the, the three and two-piece lounge suit. The lounge suit came around late 19th century as a casual, gar- a casual garment for resort wear and country wear. Hmm. With the rise of the middle classes in World War I, it became accepted in, in sort of more metropolitan areas. But if you see how people dressed, it was still the year of the... Of, you know, the the frock coat was still reigning supreme until the morning coat took over sort of thirties. What I think nailed, what I think really grew the suit as the iconic item of clothing for the twentieth century, hundred percent. I think it, it was was the, probably the mob suit, where you had a whole generation of men that needed clothes to get back to work and build the country in their suits, and that was always a, a suit. And they were suits because it was cheaper to produce on a, se- a ready-to-wear suit on mass than it was probably I guess it was probably a mod- modernity as well, I guess. I suppose, I suppose it, was, it, was, it was the latest fashion they wanted to be of the age. I think people were, I think people in the 1940s were probably looking forward to the 50s rather than back to the 30s. Yeah. Unless, of course, you were in the Edwardian, in which case you did wear a, <laughs> yeah. or a, or a teddy boy, in which case you did look back, and English fashion has never stopped looking back. Mm. Now, that's fascinating. So, And I think people misunderstood that they, I think because of the sports jacket, which is quite an affluent thing, because obviously even if in the sort of the 40s and 50s, you had, you know, a suit was a huge investment. They weren't, you know, you, there was no such thing as a cheap suit. It's probably one of your biggest investments in your wardrobe. Um, so to, have, to be able to afford a separate sports jacket for the weekend, that was that was quite, yeah. a, quite a thing, quite a status symbol. Yeah. Um, and people would, would misunderstand that it's a sports jacket, so it must be more, less formal, whereas... It just I, got I, lost. It, I, 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 yes, I've always been a fan of... Oh, I love blazers. When I was at Thomas Pink, I wore a lot of blazers. Well, you've, you owe, you've just said you own ten of them. <laughs> I did own ten of them, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But I had three back in the... I, I had the three essentials back in the 90s. Which were? An eight-button and two six-buttons. I mean, <laughs> oh, I, oh, yeah, of course... More more buttons the merrier. Yeah, yeah. Eight buttons, five button cuff, like Prince of Wales style. Mm, my fave. I know, I know. And for every day we had a three by three. A little bit easier. Yeah. I had two and then a two by three, which is just my casual sort of throw on weekend one. That was that was the beta. That was the beta, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I had a three by three. Oswald Boatan three by three. Did you now? Yeah. Oswald? Yeah, I had, th- I had a few Oswalds in the nineties. Man. Otherwise you weren't there. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Were you in the 90s London if you never thought of voting? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, so so what's the answer? How do... Kid Blake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, fair dues. Yeah, walked into that. Buy a pair of trousers. Yeah, nice, pair, proper pair of trousers and a crew neck. trousers and a crew neck. Or a roll neck. Some decent, you know, decent shoes always. Proper socks. And it's, 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 you don't need a lot of clothes. You know, it's... That's what I'm finding quite liberating. I think it was your influence of that, that one photograph, and I remember talking to Richard saying, "This is this is this is it." Because obviously, I'm 
I have a particular style where I, I'm a bit, it's funny when I look back at what I've done over the 20 years there's so many elements of of Kit Blake in what I did and it's all but, but I, and I, I found an old blazer I had made by Inida Mavenscroft and he had the two button space cuff oh really the Kit like, Blake cuff yeah yeah so I've always I've always it's always been there um so, but that casual look of just yeah, it's just simple simple clothes mm. One, one, there's, there's an interesting little parallel here in, in my mind because one of the other brands that I'm loving at the moment mm. that I'm very into is Adret, which is obviously Ad, Mr. Adam Rogers and Cito's uh, a wonderful kind of artisanal oh, yeah. endeavour. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Stunning, isn't it? Mm. And their kind of slug is closed for smart relaxing. Yeah. And that feels like the growth area in menswear for me now. Even just, and I do think it is as a result of lockdown, even just over the last few months, I have bought the kind of clothes I would never have looked at this time last year, okay. just for pottering around Stoke yeah. Newington at home, and I really am enjoying wearing them. But I wear, I mean, again, when I started wearing the flannel casually, mm. yeah, it's, it's, and that's it how... It's a game changer, Yeah, because again, my, I mean, I love double-breasted waistcoats, I love Pete the Pearls, and I love collar bars and two-tone shoes. And I did. I, it's funny. I look back at the old Chester Barry, Chester Barry thing, the one in the about two thousand fourteen summer. Just got back from my honeymoon. Is that in the ice tank? In the ice tank, yeah. Well, um, and I look at it while wearing that. It's like, oh my, it's like, oh, that's not a million miles away from from the kit. But so it's always been there. Mm. Again, it was just so funny. I was like, okay, double breasted waistcoat. But I learned from Chester Barry days. There's people. Oh, I love that look. I couldn't wear it. And I think that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to teach someone that that's not, you know, I've, I developed that look over 20 years. Yeah. But when they see, when people see me wear the navy crew neck flannels and some, um, some suede loafers or some Chelsea boots in the winter. And a know, nice top coat. A decent top coat, always in a great top coat, yeah. And I've, I suppose my only little flourish is I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with neckerchiefs. Yeah, no, no, you look great though. That's, that's a look. But that was a look I've been looking for for... 30 years it was sort of just a chance encounter with Tony of Anderson Shepherd on the plane yeah and it's like that's the that's that's the cravat I've been looking for every cravat I get it's always a little bit limp and doesn't work and that's the one that's the one yeah but yeah. that's why I think men's world's a journey I think it's I'm, enjoy, I'm, I'm still enjoying my journey after 30 years of trying new things and different combinations and wearing stuff now I wouldn't have worn them when I was younger. Yeah. And a lot of things I did wear when I was younger, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wear now. One of the reasons that you've mentored me over the years and you've taught me all the foibles of classic <laughs> British style, um, and it's always been very, very enjoyable, and, you know, we'll go and have a glass of wine and agonise over whether you can... What, the context in which you can wear a pair of sponge bag trousers or whatever. Uh, it's all part of double, being... A, double, double cuffs with white tie. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> it's all a part of being yeah. a menswear geek. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, in my head at the moment, and this is probably just because I'm talking to lots of guys who are much further down the menswear journey than I am on the podcast, I am struggling with the, this idea of traditional style and the rules. And we've had some guests on who've been lit quite literally F the rules, do what you want to do. And then other guests who have much more sort of believe that the rules have their place and you must sort of learn them before you progress beyond them and things. What's your take on the rules of menswear? Like, does do, does sort of stuff like no brown in town still matter, or you can't, you have to wear a bow tie with a dinner suit? No brown in town is still very relevant. Right. Let's okay. Go on then. Completely relevant. Um, it's all very well. I think with no brown in town. It okay for start. We say no brown in town because 
because it really is. I'm just trying to think. It doesn't mean it's not the town in question. It's not Cambridge. It's not Kingston. It's it. You're talk, I'm talking about the square mile. So if I was if I was going to get if I was going to work in a traditional bank, if I was going to work in a Magic Five, um, legal oh, firm, ma- Magic, yeah, yeah, Magic yeah. Circle, yeah, um, yeah, I wouldn't wear a brown suit. If I hired a barrister and he turned up in a brown suit, I'd be worried. <laughs> so yeah, that's I think. Uh, in the same way, if you wore a black suit, I'd be equally worried. So mm. yeah, I think it's important to know that a brown suit, although it's very elegant and you should have one if you really like a brown suit, and I've, I've probably had a few in my time, um, <laughs> you should know that, that, that charcoal... Are you, are you saying this because you know I live in brown suits? You live in brown suits, yeah. Do you secretly you... hate them? No, I, I like a brown <laughs> suit. It's, uh, you should know that a, a charcoal suit and a, and a proper navy and black shoes is, is, con- is considered more formal. Now, if you want to wear a bright blue suit and what? curry loafers, do it. Now, uh, blue versus grey, there are some sort of very traditional rules around, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, again, that's, that's, I mean, you know, I've picked up these rules. I don't know why. I, I've always found these rules fascinating because, again, I was in, I was in menswear in the pre-internet days, so we had to work a little bit harder and use our own resources. And I was very much obsessed with getting American GQ. that had this fantastic feature called GQ&A. Nice. Which was, which was parodied in American Psycho. Um, which again I was obsessed with when it came out because it was like there's somebody else reading GQ&A because nobody read GQ&A because it's the American edition mm. um, magazines okay you, it was the early days of the British GQ it was quite good um, Nick Folks was writing for the Evening Standard who was absolutely amazing who's the only one writing about like a lone voice of antiquing rogues <laughs> yeah, and wearing sponge bag checks and double breasted waistcoats and detachable collars. He was amazing. Huge influence on me. And I've always picked up on that. I've always gone to libraries, looked at books, and the small nuances and the rules. And then, again, I've been talking to suppliers and tailors and customers, and I just, I just find that very interesting. Mm. So the, the point you're making, I think I've written about it for the week, um, how uh, a blue suit in the legal world was considered a bit fast on a young barrister and we were, you know, your first suit as a as a as a newly new qualified barrister should be not only charcoal grey, it should be an Oxford grey. And I remember making a suit for Eden Ravens Croft, a three piece, obviously, because two piece single breasted suit isn't isn't really a suit. Um <laughs> All right, we'll come on to that. <laughs> um is um uh, in an Oxford Grey, and I, it's so lovely now. I, I talked to barristers, and they, they say their first suit from Eden Ravenscroft was the four piece, the four piece Oxford, because it was two pairs of trousers, a charcoal vest, and, and, and all matching with a suit. Mm. Um, and it was that, that the perfect foot for us, and it was important to know that. A blue suit for a young guy, a bit fast. Okay. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Just it's ch- just it's just the way that the sort of British yeah, establishment yeah. has it decided was, it's, it's a, a bit the, fast. Oxford, Oxford Grey was, yeah. but and I said I think that's still true today because the, I mean I, I love that bright navy. I've still got one in my wardrobe from two thousand. that had in tonic detail and made in tonic. The Richard James made so fast in the nineties that real sort of bright bright blue. Yeah, very almost cobalt blue. Yeah, which has then been the uniform of choice for provincial estate agents <laughs> you go to any corporate event if you go to say the day at the races mm. and you see the gang going in the bright blue suits just stay away from them 
You know they're going to get a bit leery. Okay. <laughs> well, ties around the head later. That is a, that's a very, very interesting insight into a very traditional <laughs> West End point of view. Well, let's, what's coming next for Kit Blake then? What's on the horizon? Going more great trousers, guns. More trousers, more fabrications. We've got a great dialogue with our customers. I think that's part of the reason why the smaller, more nimbler brands uh, are doing okay at the moment. Because if you DM me on Instagram, it's, you know, I'll, I'll get back to you because I love the conversation and I get great comments, get some criticism. All good. It's always good to hear. Yeah. And my question is, what what else would you like to see? I mean, I'm, I'm getting some like some really interesting comments. So there's more fabrications in the pleat. The pleat is obviously our hero. Yeah. Um, We've just launched the Stretch Alex, which is which was designed way before this work from home um, idea, but it's fitted the world perfectly. Mm-hmm. Which is the most comfortable trouser you'll ever have. It's just it's an English pleat trouser with a drawstring waist waistband. Yeah. So that in like a worsted flannel. We've got we've got some lightweight wools for summer. And that that worsted flannel, it's a lovely quality. It's a beautiful it has quality. a touch of kind of give to it, doesn't it? It has got a slight give to it. it works, Feels easy. It, it works really, really well. And yeah. I I love that with a with a long sleeve polo and a safari jacket and it's a very easy look for this for sort of this time of year. Yeah. Um we 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 love we've done our first Connery fit, which was the the Frogmouth pockets. Yeah, and we're looking to refine that for the summer. We, we want to make that a bit more of a sports trouser. Richards of King Golfer uh. loves pleats, but he he wears his Connery for golf. Interesting, and also for and also for driving sports cars. Yeah, nice. So if you if you there's certain things where pleats, if you're sitting down a lot. Pleats can be a bit cumbersome. Yeah, great, uh, great standing up. They drape. They're great for walking. Great for dancing if you can dance. But <laughs> if you're sitting down it, constantly, yeah, that it, fabric. Yeah, it, it's not great. So the, we're we we're, we're going next week to refine the Connery and have got some good ideas on that to make it a bit sportier. That's that's the reason for it. Nice. Uh, and we did some shorts. Yeah, tailored shorts. So yeah, so we I think we we decided we want to do seven styles. Will be our will be our that's where you're at. Yeah, seven's enough. Wicked. Well, I think that we can just do more fabrications and always look at other products. Currently available on the rake. Always available on the rake. We've got a full collection. We've got our own website. Been delayed due to COVID. We'll be out in the autumn. Right. So it'll give us our own point of view. So actually, that may be may well be by the time this is out. This Hopefully, is out. by the time this is out, we'll be yeah, we've been. We'll be right. Get Google and Kit Blake. Get everyone. KitBlake.com. <laughs> right. Okay. I got one. I wanted to. I kind of skipped over it earlier, mm-hmm. um, but while we're chatting, I've got one more big question for you. Okay. Straight to the microphone, with your consulting head on. Good. Where do heritage brands go wrong? They look backwards. They try to. Okay, they're often larger companies, mm-hmm. so they're probably they're probably they are like um, turning around a tanker. Mm. Yeah, not not for example. I don't know what's a good not not like a speedboat. No, um, no. so they often have lots of tiers of management. They ha- and there's often a disconnect with the product. But seriously, you probably have a lot of people working for heritage menswear brands on a daily basis. Don't see the products and don't live the product and don't wear the products. And that's it. I think that's there's a there's a real disconnect, and they have they employ. Yeah, they, they employ people to make things cheaper. Yeah, rather than better. 
That I 100% agree with. You just think, okay, well, I'm, we brought someone so on to help on the product. Great. Are they going to help us find that? They'll, they'll, what they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll take what you've designed and created and deliver it cheaper. Mm. Okay. With the customer's minds? Yeah, no. Nah. And there's, I think there's a, a disconnect to the customer. They don't know their customers. That, uh, that's, I've really enjoyed that that came up in this conversation. I and think they, and they're, scared, and they're scared of engaging. I think I'm interested in what my customers do and what they do beyond wearing trousers. Mm. I talk to them and well, you see what else they're into. You see into their music into or where they're into going on holidays. It's nice to dress interesting people, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, you, once you know that customer, you know who they are. I mean, there's a whole idea. Is when I did my the three customers for, for Kit Blake, there's no point talking about what, what, what they wear. They'll be wearing kit play, but what they do for a living, what they're important to work on, they might earn a lot of money, but how much have they actually got disposable? Mm. So there's also, like, so many companies are after that same guy who, ain't, who can't afford your suits. Yeah. Everyone I've worked, so many companies I asked for was that six-figure guy lives in the suburbs. I said, yeah, okay, so he's six figures, lives in the suburbs. Compared to what we're earning, we think he's rich. Yeah. But look at his lifestyle, what's his mortgage? His kids at private school? How many holidays? He's under pressure to have two holidays a year because one holiday is not enough. Yeah. Needs a nice car. Now he needs a car. Actually, can he, can he afford a Savoy suit? Yeah. And no. when he can, is he going to do that or buy a Rolex? Yeah. Or is he going to buy a Rolex? Would he prefer a status symbol or a watch? And the watch industry's just been amazing how it's come along and, yeah. and, 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 and informed us that uh, what used to be considered an investment watch is now a... Uh, a, a fashion watch for the season for the prices so yeah so that was it so people don't really dig deep into their customers and what can they afford yeah yeah that younger guy who's probably just left college maybe still at home he's got more disposable yeah now that is interesting isn't it because I'm gonna I am gonna wrap things up in a minute I promise but the other thing that that you've just tapped into there is I have an issue with a lot of of established brands in our space at fixating on selling to the 50-year-old mm. and not thinking about the future and bringing in that yeah. affluent, aspiring, upwards-moving 30-year-old, yeah. which to me is a way, way more important customer. We've picked up a lot of... I mean, interestingly, I won't, I won't tell who my... We had a, an older guy for Kit Blake who is a bespoke aficionado who just wants an easy brand. And we're an easy, we're an easy solution because he can just... He knows he can order four or five pairs and there'll be holiday trousers um, be a bit of fun with them but they're not a million miles from what it gets bespoke at a fraction of the cost yeah. and then the other guy is the 20 something who's looking to go into the sartorial world and wants that one investment piece that will make his wardrobe completely different and you do get that yeah, no, I get that. And it's razor sharp forward pleats. And you get the guys who are shopping who are still on the high street, and you see them on Instagram, and they got they've got their like sneakers on a decent polo shirt. They're young and slim, and they just look fantastic. Mm. The hardest guy was our main customer, was the guy my age, who's neglected how he's sort of been dressing. And this was this was what Richard, my business partner, was very much. You know, he 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 loves his clothes. He's always had his clothes made, but he got to a stage of life where. It wasn't as important as it was. Family and life takes over, and it was like actually, I want to, I want to dress better, and I want, I want to live life in the way I want to dress. Um, they're the, they're the ones we are still getting through to because they haven't got time to read the rake. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair dudes. But when they do, they'll they'll find time. They'll find Kit but, Blake. Yeah, they'll find Kit Blake. But the but we are but no, we get a lot of younger customers. I imagined. Mm, that's really interesting. Brilliant. Well, that's what you want. That tells you you're doing the right thing, in my view. Yeah. 
Um, mate, that was a that was a joy. Um, All good. I'm glad things are going so well. There you are, folks. Another episode all tied up with some fun and fascinating perspectives from Mr. Modu. When we sat down to record this, I really didn't expect to hear him say the lounge suit was an accident of the 20th century, but it's a fascinating viewpoint nonetheless. Let us know what you think by emailing mail at handcutmedia.com or by dropping us a DM on Instagram. All that remains is to thank my collaborators at Birch for producing this podcast. Birch is a London-based creative agency specialising in agile content and new era communications. Check out the agency at birchlondon.com. Our sound editor and theme music maestro is the marvellous Mr. Joe Boyd. How many M's do you need, huh? You can hear more from him by following at This Is Joe Boyd on SoundCloud and social media. Here's us wishing you a safe and stylish week to come, and we'll chat to you again very soon. <laughs>